We're going to read God's Word now together. And our first lesson is from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4. Let's hear the Word of the Lord from Luke chapter 4 and reading at verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Him. He began by saying to them, Today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Before we get to our second reading, or, or, or sing again and get to our second reading, I want to just say a, a few words of introduction on the book of Isaiah. I'm planning to spend a few weeks, quite a few weeks, going through some of Isaiah, maybe not chapter by chapter because there are 66 chapters. So if I did it chapter by chapter, never mind verse by verse, we'd be here a long while. It's a huge, big book. Um, it's, a, it's not a book that you're going to sit down and read in a wonner. And I know when I start to do um, a, a big book from the Old Testament, there's always folks say, oh no, not the Old Testament. This is going to be heavy. And particularly when you, we, we get into the first chapter this week, you might think, oh gosh, what are we in for here? But here's the thing. I want to whet your appetite a bit from the book of Isaiah. We did it a little bit as we've talked about some of those images, haven't we, that are sticking in our minds about that stump. But here's just a few passages that come from the book of Isaiah. Um, if I can find them. A few passages that come from the book of Isaiah and see if they start you thinking that this might be a fun book. And guess what I've done? I've left the passages somewhere else. So I'll need to do them from memory. But maybe some of you can think of passages in the book of Isaiah. But Isaiah's got so much in it. It's got the whole section about the Lord who takes on our pain and our suffering. It's got that verse from Isaiah 7 which speaks about the virgin shall be with child and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with his people. And we can go on and on and on about the very many verses in Isaiah that are fantastic. In fact, how many of you know the song The Messiah? or the, the music of the Messiah. If you go through that, it uses 20 different references to the book of Isaiah. So much of that language. The day that the Lord will come and He will dry the tears from every eye, and death will be no more. That comes from Isaiah. The lion shall lie with the lamb. That day there will be peace. It comes from Isaiah. So many nations shall speak peace unto nation, which is the motto of the BBC, by the way, comes from 
Isaiah, and we could go on and on and on about the very many fantastic hymns that come from Isaiah. In fact, if Eric was asking me for a praise list for the next few weeks, it's all there. We'll see next week as we hear those words where, where, where the Lord says to Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. There we have it again. So many words that set off so many different songs that are there. In fact, I think we should just have the choir next week singing the Messiah. Could you manage that? Hallelujah. All of it. All of it. Yeah. But we could just do that. It's so much that's there. In fact, the passage that we have just read, Jesus stood up at the very beginning of his ministry and read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he concluded it by saying, that's me. That's happening. Because Isaiah almost completely points to all that God is going to do when he sends his Messiah. It talks about his suffering, his taking on sin. And it talks about his victory, and it talks about his kingship, and it talks about all of those themes right through the book. So Isaiah is very, very important, and I have just found all the verses that I have missed out. A people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Heard that one? Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. Isaiah. The wolf shall lie with the lamb, and the leopard lie down with the goat. Isaiah. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, remove his people's disgrace from the earth. Isaiah, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We could go on and on and on. And I bet you, most of you have heard of at least one of those verses, haven't you? Particularly at Christmas. Lots and lots of verses that we could go on today. Isaiah actually is so embedded in the New Testament that if you read the New Testament, you actually find Isaiah quoted or alluded to 418 times. It is the second most quoted book in the New Testament. The first would be the book of Psalms. So it's right there through the whole time. Sometimes Christians can be tempted to say, look, I'm a New Testament person. I, I don't, the Old Testament doesn't really matter. And all I would say to you is, well, it mattered to Jesus. It mattered an awful, awful lot to Jesus. And in fact, there was a guy in the second century, a, a teacher, a preacher who, who's called Marcion. And, and Marcion decided we don't need the Old Testament. We don't need all that Jewish stuff. We're Christians. And then, then Marcion started to look at the New Testament and said, well, bits of this are quite Jewish as well. We better get rid of them that talk about the Old Testament. And he got rid of just about everything until he was left about, with about half the gospel of Luke and nothing much else. And the church listened to what Marcion was saying and they excommunicated him. And they basically said throughout the centuries that followed, don't listen to Marcion. He was wrong. So a wee clue. The Old Testament really, really does matter, and particularly the book of Isaiah. In fact, somebody called it the fifth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah, if you want to get the whole scope of it. It really is important. Paul, reflecting on the story of the Old Testament, said, these things are written down for our edification. 
They are written down that we might learn and grow and see what God is about. So, I want to suggest to you that all this matters. Who was Isaiah? Well, he lived in Jerusalem. He ministered as we'll see in the first verse of this when we read it, under four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It's all right, you can forget their names. They don't really matter too much at this stage. We'll come back to them. So, he was living in about 740 BC. Not bad for a guy that forecast Christmas, 740 years before it happened. And he was living at a time which in some ways isn't that different from our own. The people's hearts had turned away from God. They still went through the religious stuff, but they didn't really take it seriously. They didn't obey God's law. They didn't follow in His ways. And one of the things that comes across in Isaiah particularly is they were looking after number one. They didn't care about the poor, and their heart wasn't for the oppressed. And so Isaiah is a very tough book. It says God is going to deal with this. In fact, He's going to bring the tree coming tumbling down, and He he will do that by a group of enemies called the Assyrians that will conquer the place And that's really what Isaiah deals with through his life, through 60 years of ministry, roughly the first 39 chapters. The next 27 chapters will actually deal with events 100 years later, almost reflecting back as God does things in the next generation, but we'll come back to that. It's interesting, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. Does anyone know how many books there are in the Bible? 66. And Isaiah is divided into almost two sections. The first section is 39 chapters, and the second section is 27. You can do the maths. Does anyone know how many books there are in the Old Testament? 39. And how many books in the New Testament? 27. Could be a coincidence, or it could be a sign to us that actually in Isaiah you find everything. You find the sin and the brokenness of the world. You find the promise of the Messiah that's to come, and actually you also get promises that are almost like revelation of the day that will come when death will be swallowed up and nature restored. So, there is so much in this. It's a book that seems to, in one sense, all be about judgment and God saying, you've failed and you've broken and you've ignored me and you've broken my heart and judgment is going to come. But rather than God leave it with anger, the more He talks about the people's faithlessness, the more He meets it as we've seen in those texts, with promise after promise after promise after promise. As you face up to the brokenness of what you live in and who you are, then God meets you with hope for the future. And I think that's something we need in our own day, isn't it? We're not running away from the fact that the church is broken, that society is broken, that our hearts are broken, But we need God to lift us to a place where He says, you and your society and your day may have been faithless and broken, but I will be faithful and I will deliver on everything that I have promised and I will keep promising you more and more and more. The more faithless you are, says God, the more faithful I will be. So, we're going to read now, and then we'll sing, and I'm going to read the first 20 verses of Isaiah. Get ready, because this bit doesn't start with hope. It starts somewhere else. Let's read. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey, its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as they are overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, of, fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the bulls or the, the lambs and the goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies." your new moon feasts, and your appointed festivals. I hate them with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, You'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Father, we ask this morning that as we spend a little time looking at this first chapter of Isaiah, that it wouldn't just be a history lesson of things said centuries ago, but you would speak to our hearts and our life, that you would challenge us, but you would also fill us with the hope that your love brings. Amen. The theme of Isaiah, you might say, is simply this, you are broken, you are sinful, but your sinfulness and your brokenness is not a match for the wonder, the power, and the mercy of God. That's why we have hope, not because we can do better 
not because we can lift ourselves out of the places that we're at, but because God is God, and His love and His mercy will triumph. It begins in this first chapter by inviting God's people to look around and see what's happening in their own day. Hear me, you heavens, listen, you earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them, but they have rebelled against me. And the one thing we should capture from this beginning is, here is a father with an absolutely broken heart. This isn't just a, a sort of lawgiver who's given a set of instructions to a bunch of people who should do what they're told and they haven't done it and he's getting a bit annoyed, like a policeman with a whistle. This is a father looking at his children that he has loved and that he has reared and he has hoped for and he has wanted, and they are throwing it all back in his face. You know, what do parents want more than anything else from their children? Yeah, they want their love. They want them to say nice things to them. But actually, what they want for them is that they would share the values that are important to them, that they would follow in the ways that you have brought them up to be. You know, do you ever wonder, why does God want you to love your neighbor? You know, we know the commandment, love your neighbor. Why? Why does God want you to love people that are hard to love? And here is the simple answer. Because He does. Why does God want us to care about this planet? Because He loves it. It's really as simple as that. How love you, holy hidden being, if we do not love the world that you have made? How can a child respect a parent if the things that matter to the parent, that the parent loves and cares about, the child doesn't care two hoots about? It doesn't matter how much the child goes around and says, oh, you're wonderful, daddy, if the child's turning around and saying, but I, I, I can't stand the rest of the family. I can't stand the things that you get up for in the morning. Oh, but you're wonderful. But I'm rejecting everything that you've said. And that's what we hear here. God's heart. And God says this is completely senseless. You know, even an ox knows where it finds a manger. It knows who the owner is. It, it, it knows which side the bread is buttered on. It knows what's good for it. But, but, but you children, you're just ignoring everything I've got in my heart for you. You're off doing things that just are crazy. I want only the best for you. And you're just throwing it all back in my face. Can you see the broken heart of your father? And, and, and can we apply that not to someone else or some nation away years ago, but to ourselves? As we're apathetic about the things that we sing. You know, we go to church, sing all this stuff, but actually. As we, as we sort of say, well, we should do some good works, but you know what? There's a limit. And we come to a father who says, you know, I so care about the downtrodden and the poor. I so care about the lost that I sent my son. That's how much I love them. And you're just throwing it all back in my face. That's the heart of the God that we've got here. 
And he turns around in these first verses, and they're almost a lawsuit against this Israel, putting out the complaint before them. And he goes on from there to say, woe to the sinful nation. What's Israel supposed to be? A holy nation. She's supposed to be a group of people that God has loved so much, God has revealed so much of His heart to them, God has promised so much to them, that they will live in the world as a blessing to all the other nations. That's what He said to Abraham. I'm going to bless you I'm going to have a relationship with you that you can show the world what it means to live in a relationship with me. But you're a sinful nation. You're a nation that's doing everything that's wrong. You are guilty, a brood of evildoers, a whole family of wrongdoing. You know, one of the things that we, we sometimes forget about, about, about life is that it's lived communally. It's lived as a family. So it's not just what I do is right or wrong. We actually relate to each other. And you know this in your own family, don't you, that the values of children do come from their parents. And that's what Israel was supposed to be, a whole nation where they would encourage each other, build each other up, teach their children the right ways that they would grow closer and closer to God and show that in their love, and they weren't doing that. Happens in our generation too. We look at children who are not interested in faith, and and all I would say is, well, when you have grandparents that thought worship was important, but not maybe the first thing in life. And then their children thought worship was nice, but not essential. Then the next generation thinks worship is not really necessary at all. It, 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 it trickles down the generations. When you have a me first generation in the 80s, is it not very surprising that the next generation is much the same? And so it trickles on through the whole of history. And, and you know, he, he talks here also about the guilt is great, and, and the word there really means heavy. You see, sin isn't just about bad choices. It's about a weight that it puts on us. So it becomes almost impossible to do the right thing because we're so ingrained, we're so weighed down. Now, if you think about Israel, they were supposed to be a holy nation, but they were also supposed to be a nation that was free. They've been set free from Egypt, free from captivity, that they could live freely for God. And here he says, it's, it's like a whole big weight that's on you, this weight of sinful, broken history that is, it, is making it impossible for you to do the right thing and change the way that you're living. You're still coming to church. You're still saying your prayers. You're still going to the temple, but you're just going through the motions. You're not really living for me. There's so much more that we could read into this, but you get that picture. And it's interesting, he goes on, he says, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your head is inflicted, your whole heart is afflicted. And it's as if God says, your relationship with sin is like someone that's in an abusive relationship. You know it's bad for you. You know it's doing you no good. You know you're miserable because of it as you wander off and do your own things and pursue your own ways and and, and chase money and not my presence. You know it's bad for you, but you just keep doing it. Now, let me ask you this question if you've been a Christian for a long time. There's times in your life where you've turned back to God, where you've said, I'm sorry, I'm going the wrong way. I want you to be first in my heart again. Have you done that? Many times? 
What happens when, that, when you do that? Do you not get a great peace? A great joy? Do you not suddenly look at the things that you were getting obsessed about, that you were concentrating on, that you were building your life on, and think, actually, they don't matter as much as you do, Lord? I know I do. There's just like a weight lifted off. So why don't we come back again? You see what he's saying? You just you keep going on with this abusive nonsense. And it's not doing you any good. And you've been down this road so many times that you know it's not doing you any good. Why are you getting beaten up again? Come back to me, says the Father. And you know, one of the hardest things that he says in this passage, I'm not going to go through it verse by verse, is you're doing all this religious stuff, and I'm not interested. I'm not interested because you're not seeing what's important to me. Here's the message version of, of, of this part of the passage, and I found this really quite useful because it brings it up to date. God says, quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games, monthly conferences, weekly Sabbath, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand it anymore. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion. Well, you go on sinning. You put on your next prayer performance. I'll be looking the other way. No matter how loud or long you pray, I'll not be listening. You know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces. Your hands are bloody. Go and wash up, clean up your act. Now, if that doesn't hit you as a church person, I don't know what will. The hardest word Jesus had was to religious folk. We sometimes think, oh, those people that don't go to church. You know, Jesus' hardest words were for those of us that do in saying, okay, you know this stuff, but where's your heart? Where's your heart with all of this? Because if you know this stuff, and if you, if you read my word, and, and if you spend time with me, then you should know what's on my heart. And his accusation in this passage is that your hands, oh, no, I missed it. Your hands are full of blood, he says. Your hands are full of blood. And what he means by that is your actions are causing suffering and misery to other folk. Now, almost certainly what he's talking about in those days is that you're, you're, you're tolerating people being um, treated unjustly in your society. You're tolerating the poor being treated really badly. But again, th this comes back to it's not just about our personal sin. It's, it's also about the social aspects of that, how we, how we treat other people. This is so, so important. You know, we watched the budget coming out yesterday, didn't we? Now, it's all right, I'm not going to get too political here. But it's safe to say that most commentators concluded that it was a budget which would leave the rich with more. Here's my question. It would be very easy for me at this point to have a good go at the government. I'm not going to do that because I think that's too easy. My question is for us. Is my reaction when I hear that to say, what's in it for me? Is my reaction when I hear that rich people are getting big tax to say, I feel jealous because I'm hard done by, I should have more? Now, that might be right, but you see the problem with it. It's all about me. 
what I want, what's in it for me. And that is the way our whole society, rich or poor, often thinks. What's in it for me? What am I getting? And when we look at what other people are getting, we immediately feel a jealousy, don't we? I, I'm not getting a tax break of £50,000, so why should you get it? But where would God's heart be with that? Where does he want our heart to be? Would it not rather be a heart that didn't care about what's in it for me, but actually said, what's in it for the most vulnerable? What's in it for the people who God cares the most about because they've got the least? And you see, that leads me not just to a place of anger at somebody else or some government, actually to ask all the time, if I love God, am I loving the people that God loves? It's why as a church we need to really keep that at the center of what we're doing. It's why as a church as we do presbytery planning, it's, it, it, it's, it's really easy for everyone to say, is my building staying open? What if the plan actually is about making sure we keep a building and a community in the poorest parts of our community? That we keep serving in those areas? But you see, the problem is that we have got into a mindset in all the ways where we ask the question, what is it in it for me? It's the same when we come to worship. I mean, one of the things he's talking about here when he talks about blood in your hands is, is this. How many times have we come into church meetings and church worship with, I want to get my way here. I want to get the worship I like here. I want people to agree with me here. I want people to stop treating me like this here. You see the problem? It's all about me. I come into a group of friends and I, I'm thinking all the time, who do I want to speak to? Who will build me up? That's a problem too. Rather than coming as we worship and saying, I am coming to worship my father. What's my father like? He loves the most vulnerable in the room. What's my father like? He wants his people to dwell in peace and unity. What's my father like? He sees the heart of the person that I'm getting upset because they're saying nasty things about me. Come in to that place and say, I love you, Lord. Teach me to love the people you love. Teach me to love. <coughs> Teach me to care. Teach me to put others first. Teach me to be the type of son of yours that has the Father's heart and knowing that the Father's heart gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. What am I willing to give up for you, Lord? Now, let me just simply say this. If you're not feeling challenged right now, wake up. Because that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's laying it all bare. But then he ends with these words. Having told them basically to stop doing evil and start doing right, he gives this amazing promise. Yet yeah, your sins are like scarlet. Stop ducking it. Stop pretending this is about somebody else or about the evil over there or the government that's not doing this or the, the folk in the Church of Scotland that are doing that. Recognize this is about you and your heart that is not for me. But hear my promise. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I will forgive you, my children. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I will give you a new heart. I will restore you just as I seek to restore my people. 
And we have to stop there, but in a sense, this is where preaching on a little bit of a book is dangerous because the whole of the book of Isaiah will, will say to God's people through all the difficult times and all the judgment that will follow, here is what I am doing. Here's my plan for the world. I am sending my son Jesus, and he will bear your iniquities. He will be beaten and rejected, and he will take all of that up that you might be forgiven. And through all of that, I am building to a new kingdom where there will not be pain and, and, and there will not be disaster and, and there will not be wars. But I start by calling you, my people, to love me, to love what I love. Stop doing wrong and start doing right. Oh, Lord, convict us. And if you have convicted us today of sin that we stand in, if you have convicted us today of attitudes that we foster in our own hearts, we pray that you would take that and you would point us to Jesus in whom we are forgiven and renewed for your kingdom is greater than our failure. Amen. Let's sing together, O Lord, your tenderness.